Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 12, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. So, my name is Rick. I'm uh, here in Corona Land, which is pretty much every land now. Uh, been working from home for the last 10-ish days and who knows how much longer, but I did manage to grab my uh, recording equipment that I use to record the podcast when I'm doing it remotely. So we'll keep recording these from home uh, until we can um, all be back together again as a team. Uh, our team uh, group, by the way, is, is uh, we're, we're following our Colorado governor request from yesterday that businesses that are non-essential reduce their on-site staff to 50% of normal. So I guess I was ahead of the curve on that one. So Julia, our producer, is, is working from home as well. So we'll, we'll just keep piecing together these, uh, these podcasts uh, as, as long as we need to do it this way. So I'm hoping that as we continue to release these each week, that they bring for you some deeper engagement with Jesus in the midst of everything that you're going through, all of the loss and grief that you're experiencing, not just with the immediate effects of this virus, but also all of the things that have been taken from our normal lives as a result of it. And um, I'm hoping that that uh, these uh, episodes also give you the strength to face and persevere in what you have to persevere in in your life right now. Um, as we've talked about many times on this podcast, our true strength comes from the strength that Jesus has. When we're attached to him, we get his strength. So I'm hoping that that's, that's the fruit of, of these episodes in your life. So if you're new to the podcast, I'm author of a book released last year called The God Who Fights For You. And before that, a book called Spiritual Grit. And before that, a book called The Jesus-Centered Life on which this podcast got its start. Uh, it was sort of the impetus for doing this podcast. And I'm the general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, uh, a unique Bible that has uh, features in it that no other Bible in the world has. We didn't know that when, we were, when our team was putting this together. Uh, we were just brainstorming ideas that we thought would help anyone reading at any place in Scripture to draw near to Jesus. And so we created special features that we thought would do that, including one for the Old Testament called the Blue Letters, where Ken Castor, my, my friend who's a, who's a professor at Crown College in Minnesota, he and I, that was one of the projects we worked on together, and we simply went through all of the Old Testament looking for places that either uh, connected directly to Jesus or connected maybe in a sideways way to him, like this was a place where later something big happened in Jesus' ministry, and you find this place in the Old Testament as well. So we went through the whole Old Testament and, and uh, stopped whenever we found one of these places and quickly discovered we can't stop all the time because there's so many connections to Jesus in the Old Testament. So we decided to limit ourselves to seven, about 700 of these 
uh, highlighted places, which means that uh, about every other page in the Old Testament has one of these blue highlighted places. And we simply highlight the type in blue, and then Ken and I wrote a little blue breakout box that uh, explained the connection. So that's one of the eight or 10 special features in this Bible called the Jesus Center Bible. If you don't have one or know a friend who might um, really benefit from digging into a Bible that draws you wherever you're reading into the heart of Jesus, uh, we'll put a link to the Bible on this uh, episode page. Again, it's season five, episode 12. Um, and uh, I've been telling you that I, I just finished a, a daily devotional called the Jesus Center Daily, which will be, we hope, coming out October 6th. Uh, believe it or not, our printer is in China. <laughs> so it usually takes quite a bit of lead time to send our finished book products over to China and get them printed. And so we are still trying to figure out whether all this is going to work uh, relative to China's situation right now. But right now, it's uh, set to come out October 6th. And uh, I'm uh, in the stage of the, this process where I'm having to gather the sources for everything I've used in this devotional. And I did gather them along the way, but I'm going back now to find the ones I, I didn't gather at the time. And wow, I've got like a three inch thick folder of sources now. It's just thick with diversity. And uh, it really does represent uh, sort of a condensation or a funneling of the last two or three decades of my life with Jesus into this devotional book. It's called the Jesus Center Daily. comes out in the fall. We'll talk more about it as we get closer. So, gang, this is the eighth episode of a new series that I'm calling Foundations. We're simply exploring foundational truths connected to Jesus and his mission in our lives. Uh, if there's something true about him, that is fundamental to our lives or something true about the kingdom of God that is fundamental to our lives. We're going to try to explore it in this series. Today, we're going to explore what I'm calling love equals community, love equals community. So um, the, the, the deal is that in our last episode, we uh, touched on something that I thought would be worth an entire episode, not just touching on it. And so uh, in our last episode, we were talking about uh, Jesus's role in creation, and in the in the beginning in Genesis, uh, Jesus says, I, I, "The voice of God says, let us make human beings in our own image to be like us." Let me just read the whole section here instead of snagging that portion out of it. This is from Genesis one, twenty six through twenty seven. And here God says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. And so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So this is an interesting um, thought here. Uh, if you notice, there's a subtle difference, a subtle shift in this short little two-verse passage. God says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Three times in that first sentence, God refers to himself as us, uh, reminding us that God is fundamentally communal. He is three in one. But if you notice uh, in the narrative part of this, after the quoted material, it says, so God created 
human beings in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So again, three times in a row, God is referred to singular. So here we have just in these two verses, this kind of mind numbing, mind stretching thing that we serve a God who is one, but who is also three. And the, the, there, there's some questions that pop right out of this passage. Why not just three separate gods instead? Sometimes people mistake what the Trinity is um, by thinking that these are three step separate gods somehow that are in relationship with each other. No, it's three separate personalities who make up the one God that we, that we uh, serve and worship and honor. Or, uh, well, if it's not, if we didn't, if it wasn't just three separate gods, uh, what about just one singular personality who is God? Why, why isn't that uh, descriptive of the God that we worship? Why not just one singular personality? Why this whole three-in-one Trinity thing is really difficult for our sheepish brains to get our minds around. What, what are some possible reasons why this is the reality um, that, that we are in, that God is three in one. Well, one possibility there is that uh, it, by God's very nature, it was sort of fundamental to all of his identity is, is this idea of community, that community is embedded in his very identity. Three separate and distinct personalities who are serving and relating to each other in a humble, unconditional love way. That this thing that we treat like it's a doctrinal truth that we have to understand is actually more a relational truth that God has decided um, in, in himself to uh, express what God is by being communal, by being in community with himself. So another question that kind of surfaces out of this is if we are created in the image of God, and this little passage, this two-verse passage says we're created in his image, and God is Trinity, triune, well, how is that reflected in who we are? If we're like him and he's, he, his foundation is community, then how are we like that? Well, I, I think it helps to explain why we are so fundamentally um, in need of community. In fact, so much so that uh, sometimes prisoners who are isolated in solitary confinement, they literally die from disconnection. They wither um, outside of community. Um, it, it's, it has a profound impact on our ability to be human beings. Um, and if physical death isn't a result of isolation, sometimes the soul's death is. We just shrink and shrivel into a faint version of ourselves when we're not connected. And that brings up you know, the situation we're in right now. Uh, we are not able to uh, socially gather the way we once did the way the way we thought was normal and would always be normal um we're not able to do it now so yes we, uh, we might get on a facebook chat or google video chat or something like that i'm running our small group um gatherings every tuesday night on zoom so i get to see all of these teenager spaces last week we had like uh, 22, 23 teenagers on our Zoom call where we did a virtual small group for the first time. 
it was great to see their vo their faces, great to hear their voices. But I asked them, um, how is this, what we're doing right, right then on Zoom? Um, is it the same as community or not community? And, and uh, I thought it was fascinating how they responded. Um, some, some, some kids said, this is great. We love it, but it will never replace the face-to-face -face community that we have. Another, another young person said that, uh, that this kind of closeness that we were experiencing virtually wouldn't have been possible if the relationships hadn't first been cemented face-to-face. So is the situation we're in right now, do we have options for community? Sure. Um, thank God we live in an age when we can connect and even see each other's faces um, virtually. So we're not completely cut off from each other. But we also have to admit that this hunger to be with others um, is, is strong. And in the case of some in our culture right now, that hunger is so strong that they're simply ignoring what is clearly the, the crucial right thing to do in the midst of our situation. They're continuing. I just, my wife and I were walking our dog through the neighborhood the other day, and we passed a house that had about 10 men sitting on the front porch in a circle right next to each other. Like there's no six feet of separation. And I thought, they're doing it right out there on their front porch. I couldn't understand the thinking behind that since we all know and have heard a billion times now what, what we're supposed to be doing. But part of this is that we simply have a hunger for community and so much so that we'll ignore what we need to do in spite of that. So this, this it, it, for me, it sort of reveals and surfaces how strong this penchant is for us to live in community. Um, it's hard for us to overcome um, that inclination because we are made in the image of God and God himself is community, uh, always relating within himself distinctly amongst the three personalities. So, so uh, this, this idea that God is us, but also him <laughs> at the same time, is it is hard for us to get our mind around this because that's not um, it, that's completely other than us and and uh, God has has let us know He understands that this is a freaky thing for us to try to put our arms around. In Isaiah fifty five uh, verses eight through nine, here's what He says: My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as he the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. It's interesting there, just he's pointing out that there's a parable that we live with every day where we look up into the sky and we know in our heads that those stars would take more than a lifetime, some of them, to get to uh, for us. And there are stars beyond stars, on and on beyond those, that... Uh, that we will never see with our human eyes. Uh, and that blows our minds to think about that. And what God is saying is just as that is mind blowing to you, that there's something so much vaster than what you can perceive. So I'm like that. My ways are far beyond that. So the, the Trinity, the three in one is one of those things that is um, farther than we can imagine. And, uh, the, the grace that we have in the midst of this is that God has said 
um, I'm sending to you my son who will be the perfect expression of who I am. Get to know him and then you'll know me. And Jesus in turn says to his disciples and by, uh, uh, you know, um, cascading down through time, he says to us that I'm giving you a great gift. I'm giving you the gift of the spirit. The spirit is my spirit who can live within you uh, so that I can be with you all the time and you can be with me all the time. So uh, the gift of the Trinity to us is that, yes, Jesus appeared in flesh and blood for a short time, 33 years on earth, but he gave us the gift of his spirit who lives with us perpetually from the inside out. Uh, now, this, these are all things that, that are, as, as God says in Isaiah, far beyond anything we can imagine, but he's, he's giving us this personal, intimate uh, expression of himself so that it's possible for us to know him. So he's doing two things here. He's saying, um, I'm unknowable, and yet I've made myself knowable through Jesus. Study him, pay attention to him, and you'll know me. He is my translation. So we're tackling these uh, questions about fundamental truths related to Jesus and, and the kingdom of God. And I thought what would be interesting is to explore a fundamental question of our life that, that uh, comes up even now as we're isolated from each other. What is love? And I, I thought it would be interesting for us to look at this question through the lens of God's communal identity. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, we'll, we'll explore what his communal identity, how that expresses love and how it defines love in God's, in God's eyes. So um, th it's interesting that this lean toward community doesn't just show up in the creation account in Genesis. It shows up immediately as Jesus launches into his public ministry. So he, until he's 30, he, he is, uh, we, we can uh, pick up from the minute nuances and details that he worked uh, in the family business um, of his father, who was a, a carpenter. Jesus is a carpenter's son. And so uh, Joseph, his father, uh, his earthly father, uh, disappears from the scene, as far as we can tell, sometime soon after he was born. We just don't know how long Jesus had his earthly father. But we know because Jesus was the oldest son in his family that the typical uh, progression would be that he would take over the family business. So as much as we can tell, until he was age 30, that's what he did. And then he set off on his public ministry. And in John chapter 1, uh, verses 35 through 51, in my Jesus-centered Bible, that section is, is subtitled, The First Disciples. And this is where Jesus goes and collects the very first people who will follow him. Now, think about this. Um, Jesus could have set off into his ministry solo. He could have done the whole thing solo. That, those were available choices. Sometimes we look at these stories and we think, because they're in the Bible, this is the only way that they could have happened. But that, it's not true. Jesus could have... Uh, practiced and, and uh, invested himself in his ministry uh, uh, basically alone. But from the very beginning, he collects a community. Um, so he passes by John the Baptist and John the Baptist disciples, and, and uh, he uh, sees a couple of those disciples who, who uh, come up to him to, to ask him a question. Jesus asks him, what do you want? And, 
And uh, they ask him where he's staying, and Jesus says, why don't you come with me and see? So the first act of Jesus is to invite these two guys into community with him. Not just have a conversation out there uh, next to the path, but he invites him to his home to come and see where he's staying. And so, so uh, Andrew uh, was one of those two men, and he is Simon's uh, brother. And so Andrew goes to Simon and says, uh, come to me. I think I have found the Christ. And so Simon comes. And then uh, the next day, Jesus goes to Galilee and finds Philip. And, and then um, Philip finds Nathaniel and tells him to come. And it goes on from there. So Jesus, from the very beginning here, is, is collecting people into community. It, and he can't help himself because he is by nature communal. So um, rather than going solo with this, he forms a group of people around him that he can be in relationship with. Now, this is obviously strategic later on for the spreading of the gospel, that these, these men would live with Jesus in close connection with him as their rabbi to uh, not only hear his teaching up close, but also to soak in his presence and just as a Talmud would do, a Talmud is a, a, is a young boy, Jewish student of a rabbi, just as a Talmud would soak in the presence of his rabbi by literally living in that rabbi's home, rabbi's home Jesus immediately invites these, these men into his presence to, so that they can soak in each other, I guess is a way of saying it, that, that, that community becomes fundamental to later on how the gospel is spread throughout the world, because these men, of course, become the, the linchpins for that. Um, but also because um, Jesus is here modeling how we are wired. We are wired to be in relationship with other people. Even the God of the universe um, does not choose to live solo in this sense. Now, now, this doesn't have anything really to do with your marriage status, by the way. No matter whether you're married or single, all of us need close, intimate relationships, no matter what form they take. And here Jesus is modeling that kind of intimacy as fundamental to his nature. So um, I, I always try to think of, of parables for what uh, the power of this kind of community would look like. And we've talked before about one of my favorite films, The Way, Way Back. We'll put a link to... Um, on our episode page to the way, way back. If you've never seen it and you're working at home or uh, quarantined at home, now would be the time to watch a really good movie. And the way, way back is one of those. It's uh, written by uh, uh, Nat Faxon and Jim Rash, who won the Academy Award for writing a film called The Descendants. And this film came after that one. And uh, I like this one much better than The Descendants. Uh, it's just a brilliantly written film. It a, has a serious focus, but it's funny. Um, so there's a scene in the way, way back that was that um, the, the, the longer I get away from the film, the more profound this scene is to me. It's kind of funny because in the film, it doesn't seem like such a profound scene. But let me just set up for you the story of the way, way back and tell you what this scene is about as an illustration or a little parable of the power of community in our life. So this is the story of a single mom and her teenage son who agreed to spend a good chunk of their summer with the mom's newish boyfriend. His name is Trent, played by Steve Carell. And the film opens with uh, Trent 
and uh, and this single mom and Duncan, the young teenage boy that who's the focus of the film, and Trent's uh, older teenage daughter, they're all in a station wagon heading down the highway to his uh, East Coast beach house, and they're going to spend. Uh, the the film seems to indicate they're going to spend at least a month at at Trent's beach house there on the East Coast. And uh, Duncan, the young teenage boy who is going with his single uh, single mother to this beach house, is not happy. He has not connected with Trent. He doesn't trust Trent. He's also broken and destroyed over the break breakup of his family. He doesn't really want to be going to this beach house for the summer. He'd rather be with his dad, but his mom has insisted that he go with her. And so he's going to this, this, uh, this thing, just dreading it from the, from the start. And once they're there at the beach house, the mom and the son try to integrate into Trent's existing summer community of old friends. So he's been going to his beach house for a long time. He has a whole set of community uh, friendships and community there. He's divorced, obviously, and his older teenage daughter, as I said, is with him, and the the boy just feels lost in this new world. Uh, he's he he doesn't know what to do with himself, and he sees more and more evidence that Trent is hiding um, behind his pleasant facade. He is hiding a kind of a brutal, vicious, um, and untrustworthy personality. So. The boy doesn't know what to do because his mom seems oblivious to to the dark side of Trent. And uh, more and more, he just can't stand being around Trent. So he finds an excuse to go into town and stumbles upon a water park in town. And uh, once he gets inside the water park, he meets up with Owen, who uh, runs the water park. And the relationship with Owen and Trent becomes sort of the focal point of the film and for Trent's, uh, I mean, for uh, Duncan's redemption. So uh, he ends up uh, uh, being offered a job, a part-time job there at the water park, and that's his salvation because that means he can get away from the beach house and spend most of his days at the water park, but he doesn't tell anyone in his family or his connections that this is what he's doing. He just takes off in the morning and doesn't tell anyone where he's going. And he quickly becomes um, an integral part of this sort of community of oddball workers at the water park. Uh, it's really a, 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 a whole menu of oddness <laughs> of the people that work. In the, in, but they accept him and they enjoy him and they delight in him and they invite him into their lives. And, uh, and it becomes, for Duncan, the safest place in the world where he's seen and, and appreciated and enjoyed for who he is. And so he tries to keep it uh, sort of sacred away from everyone else. Uh, he doesn't want it to end, so he doesn't want anyone to know. And uh, one night back at the beach house, there's a big outdoor party and Duncan has caught Trent cheating on his mom and um, can't stand his mom's indifference to this any longer. So he just kind of blows a gasket at this evening party and confronts Trent. They actually get into kind of a shoving match and it's incredibly upsetting. Um, it's scandalous. Uh, and um, Duncan is so upset after this, he just takes off. And uh, he, he takes a friend with him 
to the water park. He, uh, not because he knows that there's something going on there, but he just has to be at the only safe place he can, he can find, and it's the water park. He's just going to go hang out there at night, hoping uh, – Owen, the, the, the manager of the park who, uh, who invited Duncan to work there in the first place, actually lives there. So Duncan goes to the only safe place he knows, and he discovers they're having a going-away party for one of the workers there, one of the oddest of the oddballs, whose name is Lewis. And uh, so Duncan and his friend get invited to join the party. And the, the scene that is so profound for me is what Duncan experiences at that party. Um, it's, it's just a relaxed gathering of friends celebrating um, a beloved person's soon exit from the water park. So they, they kind of roast Lewis a little bit. They tell stories. They dance. They eat pizza. And at one point, Lewis is, is uh, uh, put kind of on the hot seat uh, to talk about his experience at the park. And it, they're giving him a chance to say something, you know, true and good to everyone he works with. And in the middle of that, they, they uh, ambush him with water, water guns. And a, and a water gun fight breaks out in the party. So all you see in this scene, it's about a six or seven minute long scene, is just people delighting in each other. They're, they're uh, playing with each other. They're relaxed with each other. And Duncan has fun for that night. He laughs, which he hasn't done in a while. And, but he never brings up to anyone at the party the, the, the trauma that he's going through or what just happened that night. His problem is never directly addressed by anyone at the party. And yet he comes out of that experience somehow restored with a new hope. He does end up uh, staying the whole night at the park when he's not supposed to, and he has a conversation with Owen the next day. That is a turning point for him where Owen simply looks at him and says, you are an amazing kid. You need to ignore what this guy is saying to you and how he's treating you, and you're going to go far. I know it. I believe in you. This is a turning point in Duncan's life, but it was preceded by this kind of innocuous going away party the night before. And what's profound about this scene to me, the more I think about it, is because Duncan's immediate trauma is not addressed, what we learn through this is that it's not in the direct expression or help that we sometimes get from community that's the most powerful. It's simply belonging somewhere that is really powerful. To be in a place where you're delighted in and enjoyed and a part of and invited into um, the practices and the, and the, uh, the relational intimacy that exists there, that to be invited in is one of the most profound experiences of our life. And often these invited in experiences are delightful. They involve laughter. They're not just serious counseling sessions. It's just being a part of a community that is healing for us. And in a way, I think it's, it's healing because, again, we are created in the image of God. Therefore, we're created communally. Therefore, for us to be in community um, has a healing impact on us. So um, if, if you look at what is healing in this party scene, think of any party scene you've been at where people just delight in one another and laughter is heard around the room. What's healing there is that the laughter shows 
that there is a, a basis for intimacy because real laughter, full-throated laughter only happens in safe places. That's where we really relax and enjoy each other and laugh from our gut. And that's what happens in this scene. And you can probably think of a scene from your own life where that happened as well. And those communities, those memories never leave you. Um, you probably remember some of those experiences even from high school or college when you experienced something like that. It creates a longing in us to live in that kind of reality. And the longing is there to show us something about the way we're wired and by extension, something about the way God is wired, the way Jesus is wired. So if we are created in the image of God, and I, one of the thoughts I had was uh, how, how does a community gathering like that, that has no quote unquote spiritual purpose, how does that remind me of Jesus? Um, what, what about Jesus do I see in a scene like that? And I, I think uh, the, the thing that just sticks out to me the most is that when we discover um, intimacy, a growing intimacy with Jesus, what happens is that we feel safer and safer with him and that we can start to share the rawest parts of our life, sure, the, the traumas we go through, the needs we have, especially right now, the fears and anxieties that we're living with right now, but we also learn how to delight in his presence to just enjoy each other, to open ourselves more playfully to his presence in our life, to open ourselves to the way Jesus even jokes with us, the way he delights in us and the way he's relaxed with us. I think when you see a scene like this that's so familiar to us, what we have to say is, well, because we are created in his image, that Jesus has experienced many of these same kinds of social gatherings. When we think about his crew of disciples, um, his 12, the, the ones who are closest to him, but he also traveled with more than just that close circle, we only typically imagine just teaching and solemn and serious the whole time and performing these miracles and healing sick people. But there's a lot that isn't recorded in scripture. And that lot is just the times when they delighted in each other laughed, told jokes. The fact that Jesus was so attractive to children means that he had a lighthearted, inviting, welcoming disposition. And that translated also to his closest friends. You can see him talking in very relaxed ways to his closest friends. Now, we only see those relaxed ways of talking sometimes when he's sort of rebuking them for not having enough faith or being sheep-like or whatever else. But you could also extend that same idea to the relaxed delight he has in them. I think their times together were, were um, full of laughter, full of openness and intimacy. You can't get intimate in friendship with others and not have delight and safety as a part of that. So um, I, I, I think when we think of this scene from this film that I love so much, there's so much in that scene that I think in a strange way reveals what life is like in community for the Trinity and by extension because we're made in his image for us. So um, I thought it'd be interesting then to spend our last little bit of time here uh, exploring something from John chapter 17. Now, John 17 is what uh, if in your Bible, the Jesus Center Bible, it's, it's, it's called the high priestly prayer. It's a uh, 
it's an interesting situation here that John 17 records because Jesus prayed and conversed all the time with his father, but we don't have, you know, long stretches of dialogue that have been recorded about it because he did this typically alone. But in this case, he's headed to the cross soon and he wants to have an out loud conversation with his father so his disciples can hear what he's talking about to him. So in John 17, that's what we get. Jesus is talking out loud to his father and he and he's doing it on purpose because he wants his disciples to hear what he has to say. So this is the, the prayer of Jesus in some Bibles, it's called the high priestly prayer. Um, but uh, there's a particular part of this prayer, which is takes up the entire chapter that I want us to focus on. Um, this is from uh, John 17 verses 20 through 24. So let me just read that little portion. He says to his father, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. So what he's saying here is, I'm not just praying for the disciples who are gathered here with me, but I'm actually praying down through time to people that are you and me. If you're listening to this right now, Jesus is saying, I'm praying for you too. Um, down through time, I'm, gonna pr I'm praying for anyone who will ever believe in me through their message. And he continues on, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the whole world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you've given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. So here Jesus is defining what love looks like. Um, when he asks his father that you and I would be one, just as he and his father are one. Well, what does that mean? What does that oneness look like? If the, if the Trinity is one, and Jesus is hoping that you and I would be one like that, what does that look like? I think what we see in the relationship the Trinity has with each other is this mutually serving, mutually unconditional love approach to their relationship. The father is always pointing to his son and saying to us, listen to him. This is my beloved son. I delight in him. Listen to what he's saying. He is your hope. He is your bridge for understanding me. I, have, I delight in my son, not just because he's obedient, but because look at him. Look at what he's saying. Listen, listen to him. So the father's always pointing to the son. And Jesus is always pointing to the Spirit. Jesus is always saying, hey, you know what? It's about to get better for you. I'm about to leave. This is what he's telling his disciples in John 15 and 16. I'm about to leave. And as hard as this is for you to imagine, it's about to get better for you. Because, oh, my gosh, if you enjoyed being with me, wait till you get to be with the Holy Spirit all the time. Oh, the Spirit is incredible. He will teach you everything from the inside out. He'll show you aspects of who I am that you haven't understood yet. Oh, you have no idea how good it's about to get. And then the spirit, of course, is the spirit of Jesus 
who is revealing to us the very heart of Jesus all the time. So Jesus frequently says to his disciples and the people he's teaching, I don't teach anything that I haven't already learned from my father. The father says, pay attention to my son. And the son says, you're going to be in in such a great place when the spirit comes. It'll be so much better than when I'm here. They're mutually serving each other because they mutually delight in each other. They have such respect for each other. That oneness comes not from a blurring of the distinction between their personalities. The oneness comes from the kind of love they express to each other. It's that kind of oneness that Jesus longs for with us, not a softening of our edges with each other. He wants us to remain distinctly different from each other, just as the Trinity is. But that in our difference, we would learn what it looks like to bow the knee, to, to delight, to pay attention to each other, to, to, to see the beauty in each other that often goes overlooked, to slow down enough to appreciate what we bring to the party, so to speak, to, to uh, create an atmosphere of trust and relaxation and safety in our relationships, so much so that we can risk being ourselves. Most of us have trust issues because our trust has been broken, uh, sometimes profoundly so, sometimes in a traumatizing way. And the only healing for that is trusting community. And it's high risk because relationships are what caused this pain for many of us in the first place. But the only healing for it is in community. And so Jesus is, is, is understanding the need for our healing and understanding that the only pathway toward that is that we would move toward intimacy and community with each other, that we would be one as he and the Father and the Spirit are one. So uh, this unity, this oneness that uh, Jesus is talking about here, he says that the world will know that we are loved by Jesus um, when the world sees our oneness. And I think what he's really saying here is that the world will understand that we've been loved by someone um, who's created a foundation of safety in our souls. They'll understand that by looking at the way that we love each other, that we have all experienced a love that is higher than the world typically experiences. Um, and I think we're seeing this right now all around us. It's, it's good to take a break from um, the cascading negative news sometimes and pay attention to the extraordinary, miraculous acts of unconditional love and the almost uh, organic explosion of caring for each other that is, that is happening all around us now, uh, especially in the community of the followers of Jesus. These extraordinary acts of unconditional love and service, these are acts that uh, Jesus is saying here as, they, as the world sees us in community together, serving one another, loving one another, and laying down our lives for one another, they sense that we've experienced a love that is beyond category, that is beyond the, the, the kinds of love that are defined by our uh, kind of our earthly relationships. That's what Jesus is saying, that, that again, I'll repeat this at, at the very end of this little section. He, he says, Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. His longing is to be with, that we would be with him. That's his highest hope 
that simply we would be together in his presence, that we would be in that party at the water park um, for eternity, just enjoying, delighting, the moving from the serious to the sublime to the goofy and the silly all together. That's what he's longing for, that we would be with him where he is. And then the last thing he says is, then, then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. And that the world will know that Jesus is the Messiah because he sees how we relate to each other. This is not a should, by the way, that we're supposed to act a certain way toward each other. No, our path is to experience and taste deeply the love of Jesus in our lives. And the fruit of that is this, these horizontal connections we have with each other that show where the root of that love for each other comes from. It comes from being deeply attached in an intimate way to Jesus. So what does Jesus uh, really mean when he's asking uh, his father that we would be with him where he is? Well, in the end, this is a relational longing that Jesus has. This is what this whole plan, this rescue plan of the Trinity is all about, that we would somehow, against all odds, find our way back over the bridge whose name is Jesus into the heart of intimacy with God, where we can relax at a level we've never relaxed at. I don't know about you, but um, that the world is such a dangerous, difficult place sometimes. It's hard to deeply relax. Uh, we, we find other means to try to help ourselves relax. But when you've experienced community with Jesus and the, the depth of his heart, there's a relaxedness that creeps in that uh, is beyond what we can experience in the world. I love what Eugene Peterson, toward the end of his life, no, uh, it was Dallas Willard, toward the end of his life, the uh, interviewer asked him to, uh, to use one word to describe Jesus. And his word was relaxed. I love that so much. I think Dallas Willard said that that describes Jesus most profoundly because Jesus was relaxed in his father's love. Um, and he's inviting us into that relaxation as well. All right. So uh, to close off here, think about the situation again we're in now. Uh, what are the hazards of social distancing? Well, we know what they are. Uh, they eat away at community. So I just want to encourage you to maintain community in whatever semblance you can during this time because you were wired this way and because you will find hope and healing through those connections. This is what Jesus intended all along, that we stay in close connection with each other. So do it by any means possible while also caring for those around you by staying away from them. It sounds so funny. But for a short time, unconditional love means staying away so that we can love each other and maintaining connection in other ways. Um, we need to figure out how to win this war, but not lose the little battle of staying connected to each other at the same time. All right, gang, thanks for listening. You can find everything we talked about today um, in links on our uh, podcast page. Again, this is uh, season five, episode... 12. I had to get, flip back to my notes to make sure I was telling you the right one. Season 5, Episode 12. You can go to paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com 
And you'll find that episode there in any links that, uh, including a link to The Way Way Back, if you want to watch that film. Um, while you're on self-quarantine, uh, please do. And uh, we'll be back again next week with, uh, with episode 13. Yeah, this, again, is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. You can find this podcast um, and sign up for it to make sure that you never miss one on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just sign up and make sure you get it every week. Hey, gang, we'll talk again next week. 